Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Where we live on Connecticut Public Radio, I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Climate change already impacts Connecticut, from warmer autumns to more frequent and intense storms in the last decade. Globally, the news isn't good. Reuters reports the world is at risk for, quote, runaway climate change. That's from the latest U.N. Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which finds current trajectories for emissions, if unchanged, would warm the planet by 3.2 degrees Celsius. Scientists say warming must be limited to one and a half degrees Celsius, and getting there will require cutting all greenhouse gases by roughly half in the next decade. Now, public opinion has certainly evolved around climate in recent years. Today, where we live, we focus on education about climate change from the scientists Americans trust the most, their local weather meteorologist. How do broadcast meteorologists talk about the science of climate change with viewers? Coming up, we hear how Climate Central helps them. It's an independent organization of scientists and journalists who research and report the facts about the changing climate and its impact on the public. We'll take your questions too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page, and you can find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us first is a Connecticut native and the chief meteorologist for NBC Connecticut, Ryan Hanrahan, has covered many of the state's biggest storms. Ryan, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Lucy. So when you were a kid, did you always love the weather? <laughs> yes. Uh, my first uh, weather memory was um, being on Cape Cod on vacation with my mom and my brother and the Hamden tornado uh, in 1989 went through uh, southern Connecticut and my dad was still at home working and I remember being so upset that I missed the tornado that I was on vacation. So that is my first <laughs> weather memory. Uh, so I sort of have been a weather geek my whole life, um, even from the time I was in preschool. I understand you grew up along the shoreline. And so when you think back also to that period of your uh, life and then looking at some of the changes along the shore uh, when it comes to weather, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I grew up in uh, in Guilford. And um, obviously, when you grow up there, you spend a lot of time um, down by the water. And, you know, growing up, I, I always had an interest in some of the storms that we had had in the past, especially the hurricane of 38, which is sort of the benchmark hurricane um, for New England in the last 100 or 200 years, and all the damage that it did along the shoreline. Um, and with that in mind, it has always sort of struck me as to just how vulnerable our shoreline is. Um, the fact that we've been very lucky in the last 80 years where we haven't had a storm quite like that one, but we have a tremendous amount of real estate and property and infrastructure that is extremely vulnerable along the shoreline. Um, and that's something that I think we're going to have to reckon with over the next hundred years between more storms 
and rising sea level, which I think is is going to be one of the state's biggest challenges going forward. Mm -hmm. Given what you shared, do you hear more from viewers along the shore who are seeing for themselves uh, the the impacts? Yeah, for, I, I mean, I think one of the one of the problems with communicating about climate change is that it happens very slowly. So, in the last one hundred years, Long Island Sound has risen about a foot. We have uh, fairly uh, good uh, data uh, that goes back into the nineteen thirties. And so we can see that sea level rise is about a foot. Now, a foot over someone's lifetime um, is barely noticeable, right? Um, if you know you're you're rising at about an inch every decade, um, you probably won't notice that, um, and it will seem like something that's rather insignificant. The problem is the difference between a moderate flood on Long Island Sound and a major flood is only a few inches. Um, and once you get the water to a certain level, um, it can move inland very, very quickly and start to flood uh, very expensive things, whether it's a substation for an electric utility or property that's been built along the shoreline. So I think that's one of the issues is that it's sort of hard to see because it's it's very gradual, although it does look like it's beginning to accelerate, which is even more concerning. Mm -hmm. You know, at the top of the show, I mentioned that public opinion about climate change has certainly evolved in the last uh, 10 years. Uh, Pew finding in 2020 that about six in 10 Americans say they're feeling the effects of climate change. And, you know, they think the federal government should do more. And so I'm wondering, as a, a broadcast meteorologist, uh, how have you have seen your audience expectations, expectations change, but also, you know, how you've seen meteorology also thinking about ways to communicate the science to the public? Yeah, that's a great question. So my thoughts on this have actually evolved. So I started at the station in 2005. Um, so I've been there for 16 years or so. Um, and when I started, you know, it certainly it wasn't an issue of me not believing in climate change or not thinking it was a major issue. But I wasn't sure it was really my place to discuss it on the air, because at the end of the day, people want to know what the weather is. They want to know if it's going to snow tomorrow, if it's going to rain tomorrow, how warm it's going to be. Um, and so finding a way to sort of discuss climate change, I thought was a bit challenging. So I sort of, I shied away from discussing it um, on TV for the first few years. Um, as time went on, it, it seemed that, the, you know, I, I realized that that was probably um, a, a silly way of looking at it and that this is something that impacts everyone, even if they don't think it does, it, it is, and it certainly will. Um, so I began to thought about what are began to think about what are ways to discuss this in a way that is educational and can help people, um, and so that's how I sort of approached it um, at my job. The one thing I did notice as well through the years, particularly in the last several years, is that when we started talking about climate change on the air we would get a lot of people who would uh, email in or call in and say, you know, why are you doing this? This is a fraud. This is a hoax. Um, and we wouldn't get a lot of people emailing in to say like, wow, that's really great. You're doing that. Fantastic. It has totally changed in the last 10 years. Now, you know, we'll have a storm. And if we don't talk about climate change, we'll get people emailing us to say, I can't believe you didn't discuss climate change and how this impacted the storm. So there's certainly been a shift that I've noticed anecdotally with our viewers where they're actually demanding more uh, coverage of climate change. 
um, as opposed to the people who are upset that we're doing it, which is you know great to see, to be honest. The science can be complicated, and so I'm wondering if you can talk more about when you're communicating that with your audience, um, you know, being careful about, you know, the message that's being sent when we think about patterns versus, um, you know, a, a daily uh, weather event and people tying it immediately to climate change. Yeah, so I, I think that is one of the biggest misconceptions about climate change is that, um everything is becoming more extreme or more severe. For example, you know, we'll see people talking about um, tornadoes and we'll have an outbreak of tornadoes in the deep south of the plains. Um, and I bet if you asked a lot of people, if you, if, if you said, are tornadoes becoming more frequent or more violent, chances are that they'd say, yes, absolutely. We see these horrible tornadoes every year now. I don't remember this 20 or 30 years ago. There's actually been no... Um, change in tornado frequency or intensity. In fact, it may be the case that tornadoes are becoming um, a little less common uh, across the United States. The reason why I think our perception is different is because we have everyone has a cell phone video camera. Um, and so you, we're seeing or a ring doorbell camera. So we're seeing these incredible storms up close in a way that we were never able to 20 or 30 years ago. Um, so it's important to sort of separate what we know and what we don't know. Um, and I try to do that. For example, we know our seasons are getting warmer. We're having much longer growing season. We know sea levels are rising. Um, we know a lot of things um, with a great deal of confidence that are happening. Um, but there are other things we're not quite sure how climate change is impacting. For example, tornadoes, even hurricanes to some extent. We're not totally sure what the connection is between climate change and hurricanes and what the future will hold. Um, it's, it's a very, very complicated topic. So I try to stick to what we know um, and what we have a high deal of confidence in. And I think it's also important as a scientist that you say that we don't know for some things because some things are still really active topics of um, research. And so I, I think being honest with people and and being able to say we don't know um, is is really important. You're hearing Ryan Hanrahan here on Where We Live. He's chief meteorologist at NBC Connecticut as we talk about the role that local broadcast meteorologists play in communicating the science of climate change with the public. You can join us 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now you talked about um, nationally what um, is being seen with the tornado season, but when we think about any shifts that are occurring and you know how that may impact us at where we live, Ryan. Yeah, so that's something that I, that I wish we had a little more research on. Um, but just at, at least in the last you know, 10 years, it, it has seemed that as we warm the waters uh, in Long Island Sound of the Atlantic Ocean, um, and we're warming them quite substantially. I mean, if you look at the um, water temperatures, the sea surface temperatures for Long Island Sound in the last 10 years, um, particularly in the summer, and the early fall, they have risen a lot. I mean, they are, you know, it seems like every summer we're looking at the water temperatures and they're four degrees above average, five degrees above average, um, which is nice when you're going swimming in the sound. Um, but it seems that that may, I mean, it probably does. We just aren't quite sure what the impact is, what the impact is for our local storms. So it's certainly plausible that as water temperatures climb, in the sound and to the south of Long Island in the Atlantic, 
that we may see a much longer uh, severe weather season. So we may be able to see tornadoes much longer into the fall, um, maybe even into the winter as well. Uh, we've seen a couple cases with some some severe storms during our cold season. So, you know, there's a lot that I think climate change has very different impacts in every different location. It's not the same across the world. You know, we're seeing in the plains, for instance, um, in the central part of the country, tornadoes are becoming a bit less frequent, but tornadoes are becoming more frequent in the deep south. So it seems that the sort of tornado alley, the area where you'd expect to see the most tornadoes is shifting to the east a little bit. Um, is it something that we're going to have to deal with more in Connecticut with warm waters to the south of us? It certainly seems plausible that that's something that would happen. Um, so hopefully, you know, in the coming years, we'll see more research that will will back that up or, or uh, say that's not the case. Um, but there's still, you know, it's, it's something that we know is happening, but it's also uh, when we try to drill down to what specifically are going to be the impacts in our state, our state is still fairly small and uh, comparing it to the globe at large. What are those impacts? Um, we don't know yet. Um, so hopefully we'll, we'll find out in the coming years and we'll have more research to back that up. You mentioned uh, warming or warmer autumns. Uh, when you think about uh, the limited amount of time you have uh, as a broadcast meteorologist to, to, to communicate with your audience, how do you do it, Ryan, to distill uh, this important information? So it's something that, uh, especially when the weather is, is somewhat benign, um, I think it's, it's much easier to, to find some time to talk about climate change. Um, and we're able to do it online and on social media as well. Um, when there's a big storm coming, if you have a hurricane coming or a tornado coming, um, I'm not going to spend time talking about climate change. Um, there's just too much information to keep people safe that's really in the near term, that's sort of immediate that you have to do. Um, I feel like that discussion can wait till after um, the storm. So it can be a challenge to try to figure out how to fit it in. Um, but it's also important that people realize that weather is weather and climate is climate and the two are linked, but they're not the same thing. For example, we tend to set record highs at a much more frequent rate than record lows. So we'll see for every record low, we get about three record highs. So climate change doesn't mean that it can't still get cold or it can't still snow. Um, but what we try to do is we try to show the pattern and say, hey, look at the last year and a half. We have broken 15 record highs, but we've only broken two record lows. Um, and so showing that pattern, I think people people remember like, oh, yeah, it was really warm at May. And yeah, it didn't really snow at all this winter. It was really, really warm. I think that helps, um, you know, show people um, how the weather and how our day-to-day -day weather patterns are being affected by climate change. When we think about uh, the weather uh, in September and October, when we've got these really humid days, uh, that's an opportunity, uh, as you mentioned, Ryan, uh, to talk maybe more about um, how uh, our, our seasons are changing? Yeah, absolutely. One thing that is has been uh, a little disappointing uh, personally is that spring is the season that's warming uh the slowest 
Um, but summers and falls and winters are warming much faster. Um, and so we see these differences actually all across North America, where in some places, uh, some seasons are not warming at all, while other seasons are warming very, very quickly. So a lot of times, you know, especially this time of year in April, you're just sort of ready for some sunshine and some warmer temperatures. But spring is actually has warmed very little in Connecticut in the last 100 years. Um, it's almost flat, uh, so very minor warming. But other seasons, like you mentioned, those humid September and October days, fall is warming exceptionally fast. Um, so we're sort of hanging on to that really muggy weather uh, in the fall, but it seems like in spring, for whatever reason, we can't seem to break out of the cool temperatures and the gloom. So if you're, if you're waiting for some warm summer weather, chances are you'll have to wait a little while longer. Again, you can join us as we talk with Ryan Hanrahan, Chief Meteorologist at NBC Connecticut. How are you noticing uh, climate impacting uh, where you live? Again, our number, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Can we talk about New England winters, Ryan? I know you're an avid skier. I know when I moved to Connecticut uh, back in 2007, uh, you know, it's still, the novelty never wears off to take pictures when there's a big snowstorm, and I'll be reminded on my Facebook feed of some really powerful winter storms that we've had in the last decade. And I'm wondering if you can talk about the pattern uh, with uh, New England winters and are they becoming milder? So that's a great question. Um, We sort of have described the last 20 years as the golden age of New England snowstorms, which I think is somewhat counterintuitive. And a lot of people would be like, wait, what are you talking about? Um, So we are seeing much warmer winters than we used to. Um, Snow does not last on the ground nearly as long as it used to. So if you compare the number of days in the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s with an inch of snow or more on the ground to what we have now, it's very stark. It's very, very different. But the interesting thing about that is that we are actually seeing larger snowstorms Um, and we're seeing more powerful winter storms. It seems that a lot of that is due to the fact that the waters off New England are warmer than they used to be, and that warmer water um, combined with cold air over Canada and the northeastern United States is that contrast um, between the warm ocean waters and the cold air to our north. That's what gives us storms. So we're seeing these these larger snowstorms that are dropping a tremendous amount of snow. So they're happening, you know, as it seems like every year we're getting one of these big snowstorms, but we're not getting as many little storms. Um, and so, yeah, the, our, if you look at the, the average temperature um, in the winter in New England is increasing. Um, every decade is warmer than the previous decade, pretty much. However, if you look at the total snowfall over the course of the season, It's basically flat. In some places, it's actually increased a little bit. So that is something that I think if you ask people 20 or 30 years ago what their prediction would be for for snowfall in New England as the climate warmed, they probably wouldn't have said that. Um, But that's at least for now what what has been happening. So if you like big snowstorms, this is is the uh, best time to be a New Englander. (laughs) 
Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677. In the beginning of our interview, you talked about uh, your revolution in feeling comfortable uh, bringing the science of climate change into your work, uh, 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 connecting the weather um, with climate and talking about it with your viewers. And I'm wondering if if you've seen support from your network change uh, to stay on this topic, Ryan. Yeah, so... um Right now, we are we are um, the company as a whole has made um, covering climate change a priority, uh, something that they think is very important. Um, this is something that that, that NBC has always um, been very good about, um, and they've always encouraged us to report on climate change. Um, back in two thousand seven, I believe uh, we did a, a year long series on uh, climate change and. Uh, things that we can do to help the environment. Uh, so we've been doing this for a, for a long time. So um, we've always had the support. I think now news organizations as a whole recognize that this is something that not only is it important to cover, but your viewers are demanding that you cover it. So I think there has been that kind of uh, recognition. Um, and so we get a tremendous amount of support from our management and from the company. Again, Ryan Hanrahan is with us, NBC Connecticut's chief meteorologist, as we talk about how uh, local meteorologists are the scientists that the public trusts and so how they communicate the science of climate change to viewers, how that has changed. We'll continue talking right after the break, and we'll take your questions to 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Local meteorologists connect with viewers every day about the weather, and because they're so trusted, they've become important messengers to inform the public about the impacts on communities because of climate change. We're talking about that today with Ryan Hanrahan, NBC Connecticut's chief meteorologist. You can join us with your question or comment, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. Uh, before the break, Ryan, I asked you about the, the support that you 
you're receiving from your network uh, when it talk when you talk to viewers about the science of climate change. Coming up, we're going to be hearing from Climate Central, which is a nonprofit news organization that provides localized data and information for meteorologists. And so, can you talk about this resource and how it helps you do your work? Yeah, Climate Central has been really fantastic uh, for us um, because they, they're able to present a lot of research um, that is going on uh, almost continuously. I mean, there, there are papers published on climate change probably daily, um, and we don't necessarily have the time to dig into all of those um, because, you know, at the end of the day, we're trying to forecast the weather too um, and keep up with the latest technology and the latest research here. So Climate Central has done a really, really good job of taking that research and packaging it in really easily digestible ways um, for broadcast meteorologists to use. Um, And and so we use their data quite a bit, probably I would say uh, weekly, and showing the impact of climate change here in Connecticut. Uh, we know uh, through uh, polling and surveys that uh, depending on uh, someone's um, uh, political bias, how they perceive climate change and solutions or even approaches can vary. And so I'm wondering when you talk with your colleagues, you know, who aren't uh, living in uh, uh, Connecticut, uh, but maybe in a state where uh, concern about climate change doesn't rise to how uh, maybe many Connecticut residents feel. Do you think that flexibility uh, and that um, support that they receive to talk about the science of climate also varies based on geography? Yeah, I think it, I think it does vary. Um, I think it, it's probably a little bit more challenging um, to talk about climate change um, in the deep south or a bright red state. Um, but I think there are ways to do it um, in in a way where you're just presenting the facts and you're saying, hey, this is what is happening. Um, This is what we're seeing. And you use people in the community to help tell your story. What do I mean by that? You know, I've always found some of the most effective ways to talk about climate change are to talk to people like local farmers um, who have been dealing with the weather and climate in the little spot in their town where they've been for their families in New England have probably been for 150 years um, and talk to them about how they've seen something change um, and the challenges that they have now or the opportunities because they're able to grow different things now because the growing season is so much longer. You know, telling those stories, talk to someone who lives on Long Island Sound who's dealing with sea level rise, um, that they're dealing with flooding far more often than they used to. telling the story through people who are dealing with it and living through it, I think it'd be a really effective means of communicating no matter where you live um, or how conservative your television market is. When we think about flooding, we often focus on on shoreline communities, coastal flooding and erosion. But I'm thinking back to some of these frequent uh, and more intense storms that we've seen, uh, even even in the summer months over the last uh, several years, and the um, the inland communities that are also seeing uh, flooding. Uh, when we have, of course, the, the Connecticut River, can you talk about that? Yeah, so we are seeing um, large, just like we are in winter, we're seeing larger snowstorms, maybe more infrequent ones. Um, in the summer, it's the same thing. We're seeing uh, more heavy rain events. Uh, a lot of our rain seems to be coming from smaller um, uh, 
time period. So we'll get a very heavy downpour that lasts maybe six hours. And that's how we get the bulk of, of the rainfall for a month. Um, that's always been the case in summer, but it's becoming a little more stark um, these days. And so we're noticing that we're getting a larger rainstorms. Um, and so that does present some issues with inland river flooding and flash flooding. Um, it's something that we need to think about um, going forward with land use and how we are uh, protecting ourselves from flooding. Uh, one thing that we are somewhat lucky in Connecticut is that we have a lot of flood control on flood controls on um, the rivers that were most vulnerable to flooding. After the, the big flood in August of 1955, the Naugatuck River, the Quinnebog River, the Farmington River, those are all flood controlled now with dams um, by the Army Corps of Engineers. So that helps us immensely uh, with these summer storms uh, that are coming in. Again, you can join us 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live as we talk with Ryan Hanrahan, NBC Connecticut's chief meteorologist. I was thinking also how you have such a, a large presence on social media. Do you think these platforms have helped you communicate the science uh, with local residents or is it on the flip where we know oftentimes with social media, these platforms are used to proliferate inaccurate information. So do you find that you've, you can't respond to everyone uh, who may have differing opinions. So how do you use social media to also um, put that message out there that that the science is real and these are real impacts we're seeing, Ryan? That's a great question. Um, I don't know if it helps or not. Um, I, I think we, with social media, particularly with Facebook, we see that um, misinformation or the most shocking information you can post is what goes viral and what sort of catches on. Um, and I don't think Facebook is the right venue to have a civil discourse. I've never really seen a civil discourse on, <laughs> on Facebook. Um, so I don't know if you asked me, you know, five or 10 years ago, I would have said like, yeah, you know, we, we can, we can have a discussion on Facebook. I, 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 I don't know if that's really possible anymore. Um, I, I do post some things on there, um, but it frequently just sort of devolves pretty quickly in the comments section. So I don't know. It's too bad. It, it's, it's really a shame. And the one thing I will say is that, you know, and, and I say this to my coworkers and uh, even our interns who are getting into the business, that, you know, for every one nasty comment you get on Facebook, chances are there were 10 or 15 people who saw the post and, and thought to themselves, oh, that's really interesting. I'm really glad that I saw that or they shared that. But they don't have, you know, they don't feel the need to, to post a nasty comment. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't, I, I'm not sure how Facebook helps or doesn't help our discourse um, talking about climate change, but um, I'm, not, I'm not thrilled with a lot of what I've seen on there. <laughs> Same. <laughs> yeah. When I think about the engagement uh, that uh, local broadcast meteorologists have with the community, you're often speaking at schools with young people. And so when we think about how climate change is framed uh, in mainstream media, I'm wondering how when you talk to younger uh, students and Americans about this story, what are you hearing from them? So climate change is something that uh, students bring up to us all the time. Um, which is relatively new. I don't think it, it happened as much, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. Um, but 
we get a lot of questions on climate change. So normally what I do with school visit, I try to talk about storms and things uh, that have happened in their community. For example, if there was a big tornado that went through, um, I'll talk about that. Um, if the kids are younger, I'll try to you know alleviate their fears after they've had a tornado or something that have come that has come through. Uh, but we get a lot of questions on climate change, and the one thing that has actually been a little disheartening um, lately is that a lot of times when I hear from students, especially middle schoolers or even high schoolers, talking about climate change, they seem almost not despondent but sort of hopeless that there's really nothing that can be done. Um, and so I think it's really important that that the media doesn't frame the narrative as something that, well, there's not much we can do. The country's never, the world will never get it together to fix this. You know, we're sort of screwed. Um, I, I'm not sure that's a particularly helpful message. And especially if, if you, if, you know, if I'm hearing from 14 or 15 year olds who sort of think, well, you know, I, I'm not sure, like, what are we gonna, how are we gonna fix this? We're sort of doomed. Um, I, that makes me sad because I think there are things that that we can do. And I think, you know, I'm sort of hopeful that the world will rise to the challenge and figure out a way to, to move forward. Speaking to that, uh, Paul Douglas is a Minnesota meteorologist who recently wrote a book titled A Kid's Guide to Saving the Planet. It's not hopeless and we're not helpless. And so do you have any anecdotes to share when you hear that defeatism sometimes when you're talking with young people, um, how you communicate with them, Ryan? So it's funny because I remember growing up, uh, we heard a lot about uh, the ozone hole and how, you know, as a child of the 80s, it was it was a lot about the ozone hole and how that was a huge problem. Well, the world came together and figured out a way to fix that. Um, it seems it seems like, wow, like I can't believe that we were able to get a bunch of governments together that were able to come up with a workable solution. Um, and we did. We were able to ban CFCs and make and, and help the ozone hole disappear. So we can do it. Um, the you know I talk about renewable energy um, and that you know how many how many kids you know, I have them raise their hands. How many how many kids in this classroom have solar panels on their roof? And you know you get maybe a quarter of them raise their hands. So those are things that you know I, I think there are things that we can all do. Um, to make a difference. And I think when you start talking about that, you know, there are solutions and there are things we can do. And, you know, hopefully we'll get to a point where we decide that, yeah, we want to do it. Uh, before we let you go, you had mentioned earlier that um, you also uh, talk with new meteorologists or college students that you mentor. And I'm wondering if you can talk, uh, maybe this relates to the what we just were talking about with younger people uh, in schools, but how um, you know they want to communicate with the public about climate change. I think, I think sort of just like when I started um, and when I was sort of tackling how, how should I deal with this, how should I communicate this, I think new meteorologists in a lot of uh, respects think about that as well. Like what, what is the best way to do it? I will say that <laughs> I think now, especially for someone who's just graduating college, just getting their uh, a, a new start on TV um, and having seen how climate change is already impacting us. I think a lot of people now who are getting into the field don't even give it a whole lot of thought. They say, well, of course it's happening. And of course I'm going to talk about it, which is great. Um, I think that's, that's, that's what you want. 
Um, and I see a lot of amazing work being done on climate change and communication through broadcast meteorology with uh, new people who are entering the field. And that's really, really exciting to see. You've been hearing Ryan Hanrahan here on Where We Live. Again, he's Chief Meteorologist at NBC Connecticut. Ryan, it was a pleasure to talk with you. It wasn't pegged to a weather disaster that just hit Connecticut, so that's a first. (laughs) It was nice, wasn't it? (laughs) Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. You've been listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Coming up after the break, we learn about a nonprofit group helping broadcast meteorologists around the country to connect the science of climate change with daily weather conditions. Bernadette Woods-Plackey from Climate Central joins us, and we'll take your questions too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. We've been talking about local broadcast meteorologists and the role they fill in informing the public about climate change. A nonprofit organization made up of leading scientists and journalists has been helping meteorologists with resources and data when talking about the connection between climate change and the weather. It's called Climate Central, and joining us now on the phone is Bernadette Woods-Plackey, who's Climate Central's chief meteorologist and is director of climate Ma- the Climate Matters Program. Bernadette, welcome to our show. Well, thank you for having me today. It was a pleasure to hear uh, from Ryan Hanrahan uh, from NBC Connecticut, and he talked a little bit about how Climate Central is uh, such a great resource for broadcast meteorologists. So tell us how you started and how many meteorologists um, are you working with today? Well, how I started is I was a broadcaster myself. I had been in TV for a little over 10 years, and this opportunity presented itself with Climate Central. They were building out this program. So it was it was really exciting, and I jumped on this opportunity. And that's nine years ago. The program itself is about 10 years old, so it's come a long way. And since the beginning, it's grown significantly. We're now working with about 1,100 TV meteorologists in the U.S. specifically. And for some perspective, there's about 22, maybe 2,300. And even internationally, there's a really robust group of global TV weather presenters that we're working with, too. So it's really it's really grown in some in some huge ways. So we had started the show talking about how meteorologists are trusted scientists in their local communities. And so can you tell us more about, you know, why that is and, you know, how your work through Climate Central um, continues to help them do their work? Well, it goes back to early research from about 12 to maybe even 14 years ago with my colleague Ed Maybach at George Mason University when he was diving into the subject of climate change communication. And he surveyed people, and it turned out that TV meteorologists were some of the trusted messengers on this. And when we dove into that subject, there are a few reasons for that. One, they're uniquely positioned. For the most part, they are scientists, right? Um, Those who aren't are at least skilled scientific communicators. All of them are skilled communicators, or they wouldn't have the job. I mean, what goes into forecasts are some really complex equations, and TV meteorologists break that down into simplistic terms. So they already have this skill. Also, they're on the front lines of our changing climate. 
our weather is how so many people experience climate change. And then they have this ongoing relationship with the public that keeps coming back to them, which other scientists really don't have that opportunity, even though they're also trusted on the subject. They just don't have that direct line to talk to the public and answer their questions. You mentioned other scientists. I'm thinking of climatologists who aren't really visible to the public, but meteorologists are visible. And so can you talk about the relationship with the two? Exactly. That's the thing. There's some amazing scientists doing amazing work. But they don't have that direct line to talk to the public about what's going on or answer the public's questions. That's the other part of this is the public knows something's happening, but they often just don't know what or how or what can be done about it. So there is that especially with the growth of social media, that that ongoing dialogue that can happen through TV meteorologists. Now, there is a connection between climate scientists and meteorologists in some really big ways. And that's a lot of what we've done, too, is when we started this program, trying to bring the two together to listen to the TV meteorology community and try to hear what their questions were, where there were barriers in bringing this information forward. Um, and there's scientific questions. There was some confusion between weather models and climate models and certain data sets and how you can accurately represent certain data. And so we got experts on those subject matters. We brought them together for workshops. We did webinars. We gave a chance for the meteorologists to ask their question to the, the climate scientists. And what was so rich in this process is there are some amazing scientists out there who have said and sat through these workshops and said, I've learned so much today because now I know how to frame my work and my research to help communicate what's going on better so people can understand. That's certainly important. But when we think about broadcast meteorologists, they also work on time constraints. And so how do you distill that important information uh, in these, 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 uh, these quick hits? It, that is exactly the issue, and it's getting harder and harder to even spend any time researching or putting something together. So that's one of the things we did was really, again, listen. What are the barriers? Where where do you need help? What questions do you have about the science? Or what products do you need? Um, what data sources do you want to dive into? So what we were able to do is we really look at it through three buckets. We have the education concept, which we already touched on, but we have this weekly package of reporting resources that are often localized to cities across the U.S. And we do that for 240 cities. So what we do is we'll take on a subject such as heat, right? And heat in Phoenix is very different than heat in San Francisco. So we'll do a temperature that is considered hot in each of these cities do an analysis and a trend on that, then produce it into visuals and offer the data set, the visuals, the background behind the science, and some experts who are willing to be interviewed on these subject matters. And how you can apply this even further for those meteorologists and journalists now that we work with who are able to dig deeper and do stories on this, not just drop it into a weathercast. There are ways to see how the heat is unevenly affecting communities across the country or the health impacts of that. So we're able to help make those connections, too, for those people that have the chance to dig deeper. I mentioned quick hits, but we also think about the time constraints of behind the scenes distilling this information. Uh, that's also a part of the goal with Climate Central to help them also get that information. Absolutely. And for the for the on-air part, one of the things that we always say as a team is if we can't break it down simply in a way that can just be consumed in a couple of seconds, then no one else is going to be able to. So that is a golden rule for us. And then when we produce it into visuals, it's very clear. The headlines have to be very clear. You know, this is warming or this is changing or 
this is what we're seeing. So we try to really simplify, and there's always that internal tug of war between science and communication of the best way to represent it that is also clear. You're hearing Bernadette Woods-Plackey on the show. She's the chief meteorologist at Climate Central and director of its Climate Matters program. This is a resource for uh, broadcast meteorologists. We focused a bunch of our hour talking about local um, meteorologists and the connection they have with their audience. But what about national outlets, Bernadette? Um, how does Climate Central work with them? We really do work with everyone. I mean, one of the reasons local is so critical to us is because that's how people experience climate change, right? You feel it in your community, and that's where you're going to take action. But there are national situations, too. And so, you know, a lot of the networks and the Weather Channel and a lot of these groups that are constantly focused in AccuWeather on the connections between weather and what's going on in society, they understand that our weather is changing, and they want to make that information more consumable for their public, and they want to be accurate within it. So we do work with all of them in, in, in different ways, depending on the outlet. I'd asked Ryan earlier about when he started out in meteorology, how um, he has even evolved and, and ways to communicate the science of climate um, in his reports uh, with the public. And I'm wondering um, if you can talk about how, through your work with Climate Central, you've even seen audience expectations changing, and, and not necessarily just in, say, um, you know, the blue northeast, but also in some of the deep south uh, regions. Oh, it's changed dramatically. And the thing is, our first pilot project was in Columbia, South Carolina. So people everywhere, when you cut through a lot of the, the, the disinformation and the politics around it, and you, and you try to help people understand why this matters and how it's affecting them, people are interested. They want to know how things are changing. They have a lot of questions. Overwhelmingly, that's what the public thinks, as we've found, and surveys do show. There are questions about what's going on, and they don't know where to look for this information because there's been so much disinformation around it. So they needed trusted sources. And so, again, we work in communities across the country, I mean, in all political spectrums. And it's really focusing on the science, focusing on how that is affecting people, and what can be done about that from the scientific perspective and the facts. And I also think about the role that meteorologists play, again, to stick with the facts, to talk about what, um, you know, science shows and what we're also seeing in our local communities. But we'd mentioned, you'd mentioned, you know, the polarization. There's a lot of disinformation out there. And, you know, at some point, do we, how do we keep continuing to continue to give that message to the public without them tuning out or, um, you know, earlier Ryan had mentioned that even young people feel uh, defeated when they think about climate change. What can we do collectively? Well, I mean, there's, there's a lot to break down from what you said of, from how to deal with the conversation and what can be done. So, I mean, I think we have to keep talking about it. We really don't have a choice. This is the biggest challenge of our time. And people need to understand what's going on. So we don't have a choice but to talk about it and to make the connections. And unfortunately, we're seeing the changes all around us. I mean, how it's affecting weather, but how it's affecting our food, our water, the climate justice and the equality issues around this, because it's not affecting everybody equally. How it's affecting our ways of life, our tourism, the sports that we follow. So we have to make those connections for people and have to keep this conversation going. Because the more people know, the more they're empowered to make smart decisions about their future choices. 
And there is an element of what has been baked into the climate that we are not going to be able to change. And there is a sadness in that. But there's also reality in, in acknowledging how bad this is and using that to empower people to move forward. Because the other part of this conversation is, and this just came out with the big IPCC UN report on Monday, is we have the technology and we have the science to make changes. We just need leadership to do this. And so if we make these transitions to cleaner energy and electric transportation and we limit the emissions from where they're coming from in our various sectors, we're going to have a climate that we can adapt to and we can handle. So we just have to do it. That's the thing. That's the beautiful part of this is we know where things are coming from. We just have to make those changes. And one of the things we tell people all the time is to keep the conversation going. Again, the more you learn, the more you talk about this to people, the more empowered you're going to be to make smart decisions going forward. Mm. Uh, you definitely mentioned there's an urgency to talking about this climate crisis. And I, I believe at the top uh, you gave a breakdown of how many meteorologists that you work with uh, throughout the country. Um, but when we think about um, ho what's holding some of them back from embracing the science and communicating that, can you tell us? With holding back the meteorologists? The um, ones that, yeah, the ones that may not have um, embraced the urgency of, of this moment that we're in. You know, I, I think some things just take time. And when you are dealing with a crisis that needed to be dealt with decades ago, that can be, that can be troublesome for people. And I get it. I completely get it. But the thing is, this is an accumulating and an accelerating impact. And we really need to limit our future warming. So that's why we have to keep working at it. And even though things take time, and we, those of us who are in this space, again, wanted it to be done decades ago. However, we have to keep at that. So as we continue to progress, we're seeing tremendous growth in people under, people's understanding, in meteorologists using this information and bringing it to their public. And we're seeing tremendous growth in the solutions that exist. So we do need to keep at it because every tenth of a degree going forward really does matter because every life matters. You're hearing Bernadette Woods-Plackey here on Where We Live. She's Chief Meteorologist at Climate Central and Director of its Climate Matters program. Bernadette, thank you for your time. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having this conversation. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. We'll be back on Friday with this show. More professional athletes have spoken out about their mental health, and now collegiate athletes are stepping up as well to say they need more support. Tomorrow we hear how collegiate athletic departments are working to support the whole athlete, physical and mental, to help them perform at their best. We hope you can join us.